Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Prize Picks, the easiest and fastest way to play daily fantasy sports. Download the Prize Picks app or go to prizepicks.com to sign up and play today. First time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code GOODSEATS. So if you deposit $100, Prize Picks will give you $100. If you deposit $50, Prize Picks will give you $50. Again, don't forget the promo code GOODSEATS at prizepicks.com or download the Prize Picks app today. And now, here's our show. The WFL rated the NFL for named players. Calvin Hill left the Cowboys and Ted Qualick left the 49ers and both signed with the Hawaiians. Ken Stabler signed with Birmingham and Darryl LaMonica traded the silver and black of Oakland for the pastel shades of the Southern California sun. But the biggest blow to the NFL was the defection of three marquee players who helped Miami win back-to-back Super Bowls. I think we're all more interested in staying with the Miami Dolphins rather than going to a new league. Uh, But we needed a bargaining chip or some leverage to to deal with the Miami Dolphins. We were in a situation where we were making $50,000 a year, which was a good salary for the NFL back then and were offered an opportunity to make three and a half million dollars over two and a half years. That's why I left the Miami Dolphins. Larry at the time just came off the MVP and was certainly a, a big name and I guess getting Paul Warfield, the greatest receiver ever, in my opinion, in the NFL. Uh, whether I was the caboose or not, I don't know. It was something new for me and I like, I like uh, taking chances and, and adventurous things. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, everybody, let's do this. How are you? It's uh, your pal Tim Hanlon. How's it going? It's Good Seats Still Available. Yeah, the curious little podcast that's devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us downloading us, putting us in your earbuds. Welcome back to another week of fun and frivolity. We uh, have both of those for you this week uh, as we are uh, absolutely excited to welcome to our microphones this week, Larry Zonka, number 39, NFL Pro Football Hall of Famer, Collegiate Hall of Famer. And as you heard uh, at the top here, uh, a uh, an essential and crucial figure in the short, brief, but uh, curious life of a league that we like to obsess about here on this little show called the World Football League. Yeah, Larry Zonka, our guest this week, along with his pals at the time from the then Miami Dolphins, the then two-time Super Bowl champion Miami Dolphins in 1973 and 1974 for the seasons prior for each of those. Poor Paul Warfield, he says. The first voice that you heard in that clip uh, after the uh, dulcet tones of uh, Steve Sabal from NFL Films and Jim Kick. The three of them, Warfield, Kick, and our guest this week, Larry Zonka, constituted, I think, probably the greatest uh, raid of talent from the NFL at that time as the fledgling WFL was getting going. Now, we've talked about this in previous episodes, uh, including with our uh, are uh, the late, great Dennis Murphy, the uh, co-founder of the ABA and the WHA, along with Gary Davidson on, on various uh, components of such. Uh, that's It comes right from the playbook. 
uh, of those uh, two earlier leagues, right? Uh, Bobby Hull uh, in the WHA and, and stealing other talent from the uh, from the NBA for the uh, American Basketball Association effort. Uh, here we are again. This is the third time that uh, Gary Davidson was uh, uh, in cahoots with uh, his pals to uh, create another league. And uh, who did they go to? Well, they, they, they went right to the top uh, as they were getting ready to set up this league in 74 and 75. And we'll get into the intricacies of that with uh, with Larry, among many, many other things. But stealing three of the top players, if not the top players, from the top team in the NFL uh, in that uh, moment in time uh, certainly seemed like a, 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 a compelling proposition uh, to garner attention uh, very quickly that uh, this was not uh, any kind of um, a dream or uh, not well thought out plan uh, to challenge the NFL with a brand new professional football league. And we're going to get into that story um, among many, many other stories uh, with uh, perhaps one of uh, pro football's uh, greatest uh, players, certainly in the, uh, in the running back position, um, Larry Zonka. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a fantastic conversation that the excuse uh, was for uh, the new book. Uh, it's a memoir, a brand new memoir by Larry called head on. Uh, it's published by Matt Holt uh, and um, publishers. And um, it literally uh, goes through the beginning and the middle and the current uh, of Larry Zonka's career. And we get into lots of stuff that uh, trip the wire, shall we say, in the realm of, of what we like to focus on, forgotten sports. You forget uh, probably that the uh, Miami Dolphins um, were in the AFL, the American Football League, before they essentially got uh, brought into in a sort of a, a long and, and, and somewhat draining process into the NFL by by the, the turn of the decade. Uh, but Larry's first two years on the pro scene was in the AFL. We'll talk about that. Um, obviously, uh, unbelievable heights with the Don Shula co coached uh, Miami Dolphins in the early 70s. Three Super Bowls and two victories out of those in those uh, early uh, in that early part of the 70s, but put him and his colleagues, Paul Warfield and Jim Kick, in the position to be, shall we say, a pretty darn hot commodity uh, when the WFL came a calling. And you'll hear from Larry as to why he was not only intrigued by that proposition, um, but uh, some of the other things besides, th you know, beyond money and and that kind of stuff. Uh, Toronto Northmen was the name of the team, even though they never played a down. John Bassett, uh, who was the owner of that team or that that proposed team, uh, was romancing Larry in particular uh, for uh, a move to Toronto, a very cosmopolitan city, um, which is sort of part of the dynamic. It wasn't just the Bucks and the idea to kind of, you know, stick it to the NFL and to the man. Uh, it was also, frankly, leverage. Uh, as you heard uh, Paul Warfield uh, say in that uh, in that clip there. Um, so uh, there's all kinds of intrigue and uh, uh, interesting tidbits not uh, previously known, I think, uh, coming up in our conversation. And we also get into um, his return to the NFL, uh, the couple of years with the New York uh, football giants, uh, where yours truly was in the stands for a number of games in the brand new at the time giant stadium, uh, probably not the uh, highest um, uh, level memories of, of Larry's uh, 
pro football career, uh, but he uh, was able to make that round trip and go back to the Dolphins uh, as a uh, uh, an elegant swan song, shall we say, to the on-field efforts. But we also have one more chapter in our Forgotten Sports uh, story with Larry, and that's the the USFL. Yeah, Larry was part of the Jacksonville Bulls team in the USFL, uh, first as a head of player personnel, and then as the general manager of that team. And he's got some uh, some thoughts and some memories about that, as well as the uh, uh, the end of that uh, uh, interesting time, shall we say, in pro football history, the USFL, and a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, Larry's an interesting uh, character, has a lot of uh, interests, uh, kind of a renaissance man in some respects, uh, an outdoorsman, and done a lot of TV work, done some acting um, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, this this memoir is uh, overdue and, and in some respects even um, uh, a revisit uh, and a, re, uh, a relook at some of the uh, more memorable uh, moments uh, in his pro and uh, beyond career. Our conversation with the one, the only, the great Larry Zonka coming up in a few moments time. You're going to really enjoy this conversation. I know I did. Uh, before we get there, a uh, quick promotional bow in the humble and general direction of our pals at uh, RoyalRetros.com. RoyalRetros.com, uh, they call themselves, and rightly so, the king of throwbacks. And you've heard us talk about them multiple times before, but if you, you've never taken the chance to check them out, I, uh, I highly encourage it, especially this week. RoyalRetros.com, and you remember the uh, uh, the brand uh, that uh, they used to be known as, but they still use as a, a as a, a clothing brand it's called 503 Sports. Um, the King of Throwbacks has lots of great memories for you. T-shirts, yes. Uh, really cool throwback jackets, you bet. Um, amazing, handcrafted and historically accurate uh, jerseys and or uniforms of just about uh, a who's who of uh, former leagues, even some current leagues, but teams that no longer exist. Um, and I think this uh, this will be a really interesting little hack for you. So if you remember the Memphis Southmen, which was the reincarnation of the ill-fated and never played Toronto Northmen, we'll get into sort of that little story. Um, obviously, Memphis is the team that Larry went to uh, in the WFL in 1975. That's the second year if you will, of the WFL experiment. We'll get to that too. Um, there's some great t-shirts there at uh, royalretros.com. There's a, a Memphis uh, uh, a jersey there and in two different colors, both the home white and the travel brown. Uh, they're also nicknamed the Grizzlies. And there's some great t-shirts in there too, a bunch of different colors and logo schemes, including one. You have to kind of go into the actual, it's called the Memphis Grizzlies t-shirt tab. And you, it's not obvious, but you click in there. There's a gorgeous shirt there that I've never seen before. That if you're a fan of Larry or the Memphis Grizzlies or the Memphis Southmen, whatever you want to call them from the WFL, uh, it's a it's called the Trio. It says the Trio, and it has the numbers of Messrs. Warfield, Zonka, and Kick right on there, along with that very smart looking Grizzlies slash Southmen uh, Grizzly Bear logo. Uh, and it's fantastic, and it comes in various colors and sizes, and, and that's just a, a mere smattering of the kinds of great stuff you'll find at royalretros.com. Visit early, visit often, and when you make those purchases that you inevitably will, please, please, please use that promo code SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, to ensure 
10% off everything that adds uh, you add to your cart. Uh, it melts right away, and you get to see the discount right there. And why wouldn't you use it early and often? Again, promo code SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, at royalretros.com. Our thanks to Dustin Alameda, the chief proprietor of said royalretros.com. And um, we appreciate you checking them out for sure. All right. We uh, are going to sit down. We're going to relax. We're going to just play this out now. A fantastic and awesome conversation. Uh, aided and abetted by uh, Larry's uh, longtime uh, 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 pal and uh, uh, confidant, uh, Audrey Bradshaw. We thank her for helping us set this up. Uh, here's our conversation with the great Hall of Famer Larry Zonka. Please, as always, enjoy. We've been doing our silly little show for uh, five, six years or so, and it was just it was spurred in. And you may appreciate this, Larry, on my uh, childhood um, uh, interest and passion for a team that shared the new uh, the brand new shiny 1976-1977 giant stadium that you were playing in called the New York Cosmos soccer team. Oh, absolutely. Sure. And, and, um, you know, I, and the abandonment of that team and that league and all that kind of stuff, you know, you sort of put all your, uh, uh, that was, I mean, that wasn't what an NFL fan or, or baseball or hockey or any of that kind of stuff, but yeah, it's putting so much, uh, energy in those formative years into the, into following that team. And then literally seven, eight years later, it was gone. Right. Um, but I, the passion and the interest and, and why teams come and go and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, for better or for worse, you've had your uh, your dalliances as well, besides your uh, illustrious uh, NFL career and stuff. But um, yeah. we've had both in in the sporting world with teams coming and going. The WFL is a pretty good description of what you just ran down. Well, uh, so let the so, UFL, which so, I experienced. So you know, coming and goings of leagues and things, and all the all the ups and downs emotionally that go with that are just part of the part of the deal. Well, so, so let me just, I mean, let me start there. I mean, it's kind of in the middle of things, but um, I, I went back to the Dave Anderson book that you and, and, um, and Jim kick mm -hmm. uh, co-wrote authored uh, with, uh, with Dave called always on the run. And uh, I, I, I literally went back to see sort of if, cause th that book was, by the way, I love the, 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 ba the banter between the two of you, the way it's sort of set up. It's you and Jim kind of talking about, back and forth and maybe remembering similarly or dissimilarly things. Um, but I wanted to see if the WFL thing was addressed and sure enough, it was near the end. Um, maybe you could, for our audience, especially the youngins who don't, <laughs> don't remember the early seventies and your uh, individual and collective dominance with the Miami dolphins. Maybe you could set the scene for us as before you're going to the WFL, you're live literally at the top of your game. Uh, both individually and as a team. I mean, the Miami Dolphins were just a juggernaut at that time. Well, the book was written during the 72 season. Unbeknownst to us, we were going to go undefeated. Uh, it couldn't have been planned out any better. At least that's the way I recall it. Dave Anderson worked with us during game to game while we went through the undefeated season. And that's how I remember the book being written. Any reference to the WFL would have been very early. Um, we finished the 72 season, went into the 73 season, 
And uh, of course, we're still at the top of the league. And we're, in fact, probably overall, game for game, a stronger team in 73 than we were in 72, although the record doesn't reflect that because we let down emotionally a little bit and lost a couple of games or a couple of squeakers. But actually, that team was was stronger than the 72 team. And then following that year, I think uh, in early 74 sometime is when the WFL started coming on the on the plane. That's the way I remember it, Tim. I, I might be incorrect. No, I think you're right. And it, uh, I was actually referencing the uh, paperback version, which I think had an extra chapter or two, some some oh, extra okay. nuggets. Right. So that's probably where I'm I'm cheating a little bit. That could be because I think uh, Dave Anderson came to us, uh, I think, in 74 and said, uh, yeah, that's coming back to me, Tim. I have recollection of that, but at 75 years old, <laughs> well, how much do you trust your recollections? <laughs> well, no, and that's partially why we do this. That's partially why we do this show, because, uh, you know, especially first person uh, remembrances and stuff. And, and uh, you know, I, I guess what I'd love to just get a sense of is maybe take us back to to what you remember about being literally on the on the top of of the world if you will and i'm i'm very curious as to how this wfl thing comes onto your radar given the fact that you're on by far the best team super bowl champions a perfect uh, season you you've got a ton of talent you you've got a hall of famer coach in don shula all that stuff tell me how the wfl hits your radar and do you think it's, are you thinking it's a real viable chance to go to the next level or is it kind of a lever to kind of maybe, you know, cement your uh, financial security with the, with the dolphins? In a word, I can answer your question, money. If it was, we were tied to any other, well, I shouldn't say any other NFL team, but probably most other NFL teams our salaries would have been a much, uh, much higher rate, but the dolphins and anyone that knows about the dolphins knows that they came from a very, very uh, uh, lean beginning financially. There was a lot of borrowing and manipulation and several times it appeared that the team was actually going to collapse in the, in the uh, late sixties and um, well, in the late sixties. And it, uh, you know, I was a, team member there from 68, 69. And I remember getting to the bank to chase the check because uh, sometimes the guys that didn't get there first couldn't get their check cashed. And uh, that's literally how, uh, how tense it was. Now, the other end of that stick is we get to the top of the world with Shula, top of the league, and we're still, our salaries are in, you know, I was, I was probably in the area of uh, 50 or $75,000 a year. And uh, I know that seems like very little money now because of all the salaries, but at that time, that was, that wasn't bad, but it was lean, but we were the top of the league. We were absolutely at the top and saw not much room to deal with Robbie. So having an agent named Ed Keating, who had a uh, association with a fellow named John Bassett, who was a center player or centermost player in the uh, WFL, well, that had a tremendous amount of leverage. And when push came to shove, John Bassett just simply said, you know, he laid, laid about a million and a half or $2 million on the table and said, do I have your attention? And of course we set up and cleared our throat and said, yes, <laughs> you have our attention. He said, not one, but all three of you. You, Kick, and Warfield, being represented by Ed Keating, will 
jump to the other league. We'll combine this with signing your talents and getting the publicity we would like of taking top players from the top team in the NFL and installing them in the World Football League. And that's what he did. And that's how that happened. So I want to unpack that in a second. But but before you're mentioning sort of the Dolphins thing, I think it's lost on a lot of people as well, that when you uh, were drafted uh, and joined the team out of Syracuse in 68, I think it was, first round pick for uh, at that, of course, um, the Dolphins were still in this thing called the AFL, right? The but. But in but but what did you know of that, knowing that the um, the leagues essentially, I think, by that time had publicly agreed to merge and and, and, a, and a pretty sort of odd and plotting kind of way to get there. Um, were you were you feeling comfortable that this wasn't just the AFL standing on its own, if some stability or or what did you know or not know about the merger, if you will? The merger took place and when it did. It, it uh, gave all bargaining rights for the competitive action between the old AFL and the old NFL. Uh, they just disappeared. Suddenly, salaries went down. Uh, well, signing bonuses predominantly went down uh, size, well, by a sizable amount. So I think that occurred around 66 or 67 um, well, I think it happened in between 65 and 66. I'm going back quite a few years, but that that they came to the deal and decided to have an, an orderly draft where they weren't competing with each other, which is not a good thing when you're a player and you're coming from the from the college ranks. You want two different entities bidding on your on your talent. Instead, your rights were solely owned by one team. So you lost all leverage with any kind of uh, competition. Uh, possibility so that was uh that was the first blow that was dealt to me <laughs> I yeah think, i think they i think they call it the common draft if i'm not mistaken that, that was the name for it the the, the uh, combination yeah, they had yeah. an agreement but they didn't have a solid uh performance thing hammered out yet but they had the common draft and that was uh, a nice way of saying we're going to cut the price of football players down considerably so that's what i came into i think myself and floyd little both floyd little was a year ahead of me at syracuse and I think that he um, that he suffered at the consequence of that as well the first year, and then I the second in '68. Uh, but it it lessened our bargaining power. All this gets down to the reason I left the Dolphins, and what it is was was just a chance to make uh, well make a, a million dollars, and I or the better part of a million dollars. And I uh, I took that you know I thought about it, but. How can you turn that down? Think about that. In one one signing, you can make more than you hope to make uh, the rest of your career with the same team. So uh, I'm not trying to justify anything. I'm just saying it's just common sense. When someone lays down 10 times or 15 times your salary on the table, uh, what would you do? So nothing. So, okay. So as you're thinking through this and I, I love in the book, and I'm not going to, I don't want to give away too much because obviously we want to help uh, promote and, and, and get other people to, 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 to read it. Cause it's, it's very well written and it's, it's enjoyable to read. And, and I don't think you even have to be knowledgeable about sort of what was going on in those times or being around at those times. It's just, it's very relevatory, but I, I love the fact that you, you, you talked about calling two people as you were getting ready to kind of say yes to this, this deal. Do you remember those two people off the top of your head? Yeah, it's Howard Cosell and Don Shula. I call right, the, 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 the Shula. I get, but Howard Cosell. Howard Cosell 
had always been an acquaintance of mine since 1970, probably. We did a commercial together. And I just, I really liked Howard. I, the Howard that most people saw on TV and, you know, he had a certain <laughs> relish that he put on things on TV and you would either like him or dislike him. That's, you know, here or there. But I got to know him shooting a commercial in like 1970, Jim Kick and I. And we always liked Howard. And Howard saw when Shula came to the Dolphins, he was very interested in that because he got to know Jim and myself pretty well. We shot day or day and a half in the Orange Bowl, do a commercial with him. And just two players that happened because of Ed Keating, the agent we had, we happened to have a hook in with the publicity firm that was handling it. And we got to do the deal. It was no big money or anything. You just need a couple football players in the background. And that's what we were. But we spent the day or day and a half with Howard in the locker room at the Orange Bowl in between the takes and stuff and just uh, just really got to know him. And uh, I got a kick out of him. And when I saw an opportunity to give a real big scoop, uh, well, I liked Howard and I thought he just lived and breathed football. He just, uh, you know, it was, <laughs> it was it was very important to him. And I thought this would be something as a little payback because he said a lot of kind things about Jim Kick and myself over the years. So I called uh, Howard and told him, Howard, I've got a scoop for you. And I can't remember. And because of my age and I'll claim the, you know, been hitting the head a lot. But Howard's wife, uh, he hollered, hold the presses, whatever her name was. Emmy, and, yeah. uh, it stopped everything because he had a show in the off season that was on during the weekend and they were already setting up to do it. And he stopped the presses. He called her to stop the presses because they wanted to scoop this. And he got to a studio and got me to a local studio up in Toronto as I signed the agreement. And he got that broadcast almost live and scooped everybody. And it was a, it was a fun deal. So, okay. So, so let's reel back to, to Toronto and, and you're, uh, tell me about John Bassett, right? Cause th this is a guy, right. Who would be, uh, part of your life again, come USFL time. We'll get to that, but he's also, you know, perhaps the strongest owner and voice of this thing called the WFL and came from a pretty well-off background, right? So, him trying to set up a team in Toronto with the WFL. I mean, there's a, there's probably an inherent amount of credibility there in your mind that not only will this big fat check not bounce, but he's probably a legit guy to believe that this thing could actually take off this world football league. He believed in it. And through him, I believed in it to an extent. But the fact of the matter was, in order to leave the NFL, in order to create the hubbub that he wanted to create, that made it uh, a tough place to go back to in case the deal didn't work out. So I just told him, you know, I, <laughs> I'm going to, John, I'm going to have to have a personal guarantee. In other words, I'm not signing an agreement here with the WFL and with the particular team that you're going to have in Toronto. I'm signing a personal services contract with you for the next three years. And if uh, you lose this, this team, that's fine, but you're going to have to pay me that money in order to, to mow your grass, I guess. I don't know what else we're going to do, but I said, that's, uh, that's the only way I'm going to do this because once I go down this lane, once I commit to this and sign with this, if it doesn't work out and falls through, then I'm supposed to come begging back to the NFL. Think about my situation there. 
I said, I will take this step with you. And so will Paul and Jim, but we're all of the same persuasion. This is going to be a, have to be a personal guarantee by you, no matter what happens with the WFL. Now that makes it a little different ball game, doesn't it, Tim? I mean, when you, when you have a personal guarantee from the owner, irregardless of whether the league stays or falls, it's a personal services contract to, to him for the next three years for my football services. It's up to him to provide the playing field. Who, so, whose, whose idea was that genius move, frankly? <laughs> well, I told Ed Keating when he called me and said that World Football League, I said, that's fine, Ed, but, you know, that's like saying that uh, Santa Claus is coming to town. What, what, who's going to, if it falls, you know, if it doesn't make it, what happens in six months? That's the only genius part of it I had to do with was I anticipated, you know, if it collapses or something happens, which is a 50-50 shot with a new league, you know, and uh, it could happen particularly when the owners are all different. You know, I was hearing all kinds of different things about the owners in the World Football League. I said, it'll have to be a personal services contract. If he's interested in doing that, then I'm, I'm interested in talking. And, uh, but but it, also, it also worked both ways, right? Because as the team uh, was getting uh, – uh, the, the idea of a team in Toronto was getting, uh, uh, you know, shut out by the Canadian government wanting to protect the CFL – um, we had no clue of that, Tim. If I'd have had any clue of that, uh, we would have put some kind of stipulation in there, which gave me an option to, uh, I just I just assumed that there wasn't any problem with that because of the John's background in Canada. And I thought Canada would welcome some competition football that was inter, international with, uh, with the U.S., but I was wrong. Yeah, but I guess my point is that the, uh, with a personal services contract, that kind of basically meant that you had to come along for the ride as it went south, literally and figuratively, to Memphis. Absolutely. Yeah, there was no option there. And I wouldn't have exercised an option had I had one. I, I was, was you know, that would you would walk away from the money and all the prestige and everything of the impact was part of the reason he put it, gave us so much money was to buy that publicity and that prestige of taking three top players, Super Bowl caliber players at the top of the league from the NFL, you know, is a body punch to say hello. And uh, once that would happen, then that money was spent. And uh, so you, you got to look at it as not just for the football talent, but for the impact of the publicity of initiating a big wallop with the league. It never occurred to me in my furthest uh, dreams that, Toronto would turn down a chance to have a uh, international competition situation. Yeah. And look, and also uh, people uh, also seem to forget that, you know, the, the, the mid seventies, right. In particular, the, well, the entire decade really was a decade of all these challenger leagues and, and, and a lot of them coming from the same minds of people like Gary Davidson still with us and, and the late, um, uh, Dennis Murphy, who's been on this show, uh, in many respects, right? This is right out of the playbook from the old WHA, the World Hockey Association, by signing Bobby Hull, right? You guys essentially were kind of like right out of that, uh, out of that blueprint. It's like let's go for the top players from the top team and let's make a stink about this because this is going to add instant credibility and legitimacy. We think, <laughs> at least pro promotionally, uh, to getting this thing off the ground with a bang. I don't know about credibility, but in, immediate interest. And when you create immediate interest, 
then the fans are tempted to at least come to the game, buy a few tickets and, and experience it. And if they think they're getting a quality product and something they can identify with and follow, then they'll buy their season tickets. And there was a backwash of that. There was a lot of, a lot of um, interest in the Toronto area. I was looking forward to it. And then in a month or so, <laughs> we got knocked out of there. <laughs> what, what was your reaction to that? Uh, the idea of the move and, and did you try to figure out if, if a way out of it or did you just, were you still resigned to the fact that you needed to follow through? No, I didn't try to find a way out of it. Uh, wherever he found a place to put his football team, I would play. I mean, we'd committed to that when we signed that and that publicity was released after I called Howard Gosell that, you know, the gates were open. It's there's no reversal at that point. You got to go through with it and honor the situation. And I told him that I'll do that. I won't back out. I couldn't back out. We were both, all three of us were locked in. And so was John. He just had to provide it a place to, to play. But I hated losing Toronto, not to belittle Memphis. I got to meet Elvis Presley, got to shoot pool with him. It was great. I, you know, kicked, shot the pool with him. They had a lot in common. I, I did not, when I did the music, not particularly into pool. <laughs> but, but I did like Elvis and Elvis was into football. So we got to talk a lot. So it wasn't all terrible. You know, there were some very good things about Memphis, Senatobia, Mississippi, where we practiced and so on. But the fact that I wasn't going to Toronto as a kid, I grew up in Ohio and we few vacations I ever experienced were going uh, up into uh, northeastern Ontario on, on dad's vacation time and, and fishing in the backwaters. And I just loved Canada because of the outback, the wilderness, you know, and uh getting up there and doing some fishing and stuff. And the thought of living in Toronto and having access to all of Canada and probably Alaska as well. Uh, I mean, immediate access, very direct access was very, very tempting to me without the football and without the money. I really liked the idea. And Toronto is one of the leading cities, particularly in Canada and in our country as well. It's, it's a great place to live, bring kids up and all that was uh, good. Memphis was not bad, but it was not Toronto and uh, didn't have the outdoor access, the kind I was looking for, the remoteness. It just wasn't there. So there's this one little problem, though, right? It's the the final year of your contract with the Miami Dolphins. And I, I was sort of unaware of sort of uh, the particulars of this, but you literally played that final season with the Dolphins essentially as a quote unquote, lame duck, if you will, because you've already come out and announced in WFL and stuff. And you wouldn't start the WFL until 75. Right. How does that see? You talk about it quite a bit in the book, and, and there's some ups and downs, I think, to that. But I mean, what's going through your mind in 74 as you're literally playing out uh, with this stellar team? I got to think that either teammates, fans, uh, Shula, Robbie, all these folks happy to have you back, but maybe not so? Well, we had a meeting about that. And uh, when I say we, myself, Jim Kick, Paul Warfield, and Don Shula all sat down. And Don said uh, he wasn't negative about it. He understood. It's called professional football, after all. But he said there is a very sensitive area here, and that's what he addressed was that, that upcoming season. He said, I would like you all and then he hesitated for a moment. He said, I think I need you all to do this. I don't want to request it. I don't want to demand it, but somewhere in between the two to hold your comments and predictions about the upcoming league 
to yourself while you're here with with us. In other words, let's not let's not make this a publicity stunt this entire season for the the upcoming league. He wanted to address it as in a in a gentlemanly manner without getting too emphatic about it, but he was going to get emphatic about it in case we didn't listen and didn't adhere to the plan. But all three of us agreed with him to keep our comments to a minimum about the World Football League coming up and about leaving and not getting into any uh, lengthy TV coverage, radio coverage, or newspaper coverage about that. He asked us as gentlemen to do that. We agreed that we would do our best, and that's the way we proceeded. But he wanted us to say, Shula, you read it in the book. If you read the book, you realize he was so intense, game to game, um, you know, particularly after we lost uh, to Dallas in that Super Bowl, and he came back. That was why the perfect season happened. The table was set. So he was a great guy for preparation. So he was setting the table for the upcoming season and wanted us, he had already thought about all this. And he said, you know, what he asked us to do was just to keep a kind of tight lip about that, not to uh, not to promote the World Football League and downplay the NFL or, or crossover and any references back and forth, just to completely remove that from the picture and concentrate on the game at hand, the week at hand. And I can't ima- I can't imagine the press, though, would sort of accede to that. They were probably more interested about, like, why you're leaving and when you're leaving and how are you handling both at the same time? I'm frankly surprised that you you guys didn't get sued or, or some other thing. I can't imagine that today, you know, without uh, litigation. Well, wait a minute, Tim. How can they sue us when they have an option year? They have an option year where they reduce your salary. The NFL back then had an option year where they reduce your salary by a percentage if you don't re-sign and you have to play out your option in order to leave. So when you start talking to me about how somebody should sue somebody, who in the hell should sue who? I have to play for them because even though my contracts run out, they still have an option over me. That's not very competitive like the rest of the world or the rest of the business world in the in the United States, is it? Right. And and it's, and largely uh, that was a foundational plank on all these challenger leagues, including the WFL, right? It's just kind of not stick it to the man, so to speak, but to, to evolve those things, give players more freedom and flexibility and choice competition right? competition yeah, right. on the field competition in on in, on the street we, we we Americans compete everywhere you take our right to compete away and we're no longer Americans we're stripped or we're only partial Americans so to have to play for someone at a reduced salary rate of I don't remember what the percentage was whether it was 10 or 15 or 20 percent whatever it was you had to do that before you could get your freeman freedom because you were technically still under contract because of that stipulation in the contract that you had signed. That's not competition. That's horse feathers, and we both know it. So while I would adhere to Shula's policies, I was not feeling any remorse at all towards leaving an NFL that was uh, you know, very one-sided at that time. All right, what's this? Prize picks, my goodness, of course, the easiest and fastest way to play daily fantasy sports is prize picks. What is it? Well, glad you asked. Literally, it's straightforward and the simplest and most fun way you could do daily fantasy sports. All you got to do is pick as few as two or as many as five different players. 
in a sport or frankly across a whole multitude of sports and simply predict whether those players will get more or less than their projection. Maybe in baseball, that's strikeouts. Uh, They're going to pitch more or less strikeouts than predicted. Uh, How about uh, in football? That could be touchdown passes. Uh, In basketball, that could be three-point shot attempts made, uh, etc. Literally, all you got to do is pick whether they're more or less than their predicted outcomes. And you can choose and mix and match sports as well. You don't have to pick two or three or four or five players in just one sport. No, you can pick a couple of players in across different sports. And boy, oh boy, when I say different sports, Prize Picks has a wide variety. It's all the major leagues and sports that you can think of from the NFL and Major League Baseball, all the way into various niche sports. Sports? Sports? No, sports like MMA or disc golf, uh, perhaps even lacrosse or um, various forms of boxing or even esports. Prize Picks has daily fantasy picks for you across all of those and more. Again, try them out. It's really easy and it's a hell of a lot of fun. And you can win big bucks too. You can go the flex play model, which basically means you don't have to choose and succeed with every single one of your picks, but you'll still get paid. Or you can go the power play mode, which basically rewards you with more money if you get every single one of your predictions correct. It's awesome. And it's uh, fun to play for sure. And that really uh, uh, brings uh, uh, your live sports uh, viewing into uh, a whole different realm of excitement. And of course, we've got a promo for you as well. So all you got to do is download the Prize Picks app on your uh, Android or your Apple device, or go to prizepicks.com. That's P R I Z E P I C K S.com and sign up and play your daily fantasy sports. Right now, first-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with promo code GOODSEATS. So if you deposit $100, PrizePix will give you $100. If you deposit $50, PrizePix will give you $50. Again, don't forget to enter the promo code GOODSEATS when you sign up at prizepix.com or on the PrizePix app and get that instant deposit match right up to 100 bucks. Go for it. It's a hell of a lot of fun. Thank you, Prize Picks. And now back to our conversation. The three of you though, you opened the door though, right? There were others that kind of saw that as the uh, the opening if you will for themselves to do similar, correct? Tim, I called the evening that we reached the deal in Toronto. I called Fernandez, I called, I called Doug Swift, I called everybody on the team and told them, listen, we're getting ready to, or most of the guys that I was close with on the team, and, and that's most of the team, I called that I could get a hold of and told them, listen, someone in the World Football League owns your rights. We're getting ready to sign an agreement that won't take place until we play out our options so there's no lawsuit you are in the same situation. So I would, if you want my advice, I said to each player, find out what team in the World Football League owns your rights and make sure you contact them and talk to them about a negotiated possibility in the future. It will have a direct impact on your salary in the near future when you re-up with the NFL. And that's the way the price of football went up. That's uh, labor versus management, or labor versus ownership, and it's uh, that's the way it was. 
It was time for the pendulum to swing back the other way. And when it does, you know, it bloodies the other side the same way it bloodied the previous side. So the NFL is ecstatic that you're playing in their <laughs> league <laughs> and, and you're, you're, you're not agitating too hey, much. They cast the stone. They're the ones that said I had had to play out my option year. Remember? But did you get any, I, I guess I, what I'm trying to get at is you, what kind of pressure either uh, uh, outward or, or, or behind the scenes were you experiencing? Well, I'm sure you, it wasn't sort of smooth sailing getting through that NFL season. <clears throat> well, I don't remember any hostile environment. Uh, you know, we were not downtown dealing with the the uh, Dolphins front office. We were with Coach Shula out at Key Biscay, or at Biscayne College practicing football and having to do with the reality of who we play next week. <clears throat> so we put all this stuff to the side and approached the regular season the way he just described, the way he asked us to, because he saw all this going down. What we're talking to now and are talking about right now and hashing over is exactly what I addressed in the book. You know, it's it all that could be avoided and we just get down to the football side of it. That's what what Coach Shula wanted to do. That's what he asked us to do. He asked us to keep all the comments about the World Football League and the competition with the NFL to a minimum. If we possibly could, he would appreciate it, almost demand it. But he stopped short of that. He asked us as gentlemen if we would do that because it meant that it would uh, keep our point of interest pointed towards winning each week and not getting sidetracked in a lot of other jargon. Yep. No, that makes sense. I, and uh, I, I still got to be difficult to walk that type, uh, that tight wire for sure. But let me ask you this though. Um, how are you viewing the unfolding of the season of 1974 in the WFL? Right. Um, uh, clearly, came on the scene very, uh, uh, very quickly in terms of uh, attention, uh, big time crowds, all that kind of stuff. But um, pretty early on, right, uh, the wheels started to get wobbly, depending on which market and team and situation. What were you what were your observations, if you will, in private <laughs> about the WFL um, as their season was playing out and um and any, I don't know, uh, thoughts about maybe what that might mean for you the next season? Well, again, I signed a personal services contract. So I knew that I was uh, not threatened by that, by the instability of the league. I listened to it at first with great interest, but as uh, it turned into days and then weeks of ongoing stuff, I started tuning it out and just concentrating on what we were doing. Um then when the league fell, I I just went back and talked to Ed Keating and saw an opportunity of coming back in the league during the season. But then the NFL commissioner blocked that and we couldn't come back in. So, um, you know, we had anticipated when I say we myself, Jim Kick, Paul Warfield and our agent Ed Keating had anticipated the possibility of the demise of the league. You have to do that anytime you're signing and jumping with a new league. Certainly is a factor. It was more than just the guaranteed kind of personal services contract is what could be negotiated coming back if it didn't work out. And that was a very precarious position to be in because uh, there's Mr. Bassett. He's on, on the line for a three year uh, payment schedule, excuse me, with, with us, myself, Orfield and kick. And 
if we're going to go sign in the NFL and pick right up where we left off, uh, things have to be negotiated. He has to be, he would want his position negotiated. He's not going to condone us signing and going with the NFL in order, you know, he, he would want out of his contract in order for us to do that. All that has to be negotiated. It has to be negotiated very fast and very quickly and very carefully. So his, his comment was, if they buy the contract from me, then you can go. And that's what he, he, st- he stated and he st- stood by. Well, in and some so- respects, you're also quite fortunate because Bassett was one of the only uh, owners really to kind of survive the 74, if you will, collapse of the league and the rebirth of it in the following 1975 season. Right. And, and in terms of stability, the same t- name, name and all that kind of stuff. I, I mean, I think, it might have been one of the only franchises or at least markets that literally had the same management from the league version number one in 74 to league two, version number two in 75 when you were ready to join. So that mm. that had to feel somewhat uh, stable, especially that the personal services contract was with him, not somebody else. There was never a question about whether John would stand up for the money. Of course he would. He gave me his word as a man that he would, and he signed a contract to back that up. Uh, and I believed him and I, you know, he had the assets to do that. He was, uh, operating in a, in a pretty new location, a new field, but he liked it. And I, you know, he did very well. He ended up down Tampa, you know, he did a lot of things, but the key of the thing was for me was when I went back to the farm in Ohio after the collapse and left Memphis and drove back to Ohio, I got to the farm. And by the time I got to the farm, Coach Arnsbarger had had become the head coach at uh, the New York Giants and the Giants were on the phone and they were already talking about the possibility of picking up the contract in full for Mr. Bassett and taking it if I would would like to come and uh, play at New York, at the New York Giants. And I uh, I was kind of hoping that I would end up back with the Dolphins but uh, you know it <laughs> They, uh, Mr. Robbie took one look at that contract and said, uh, go play at the Giants. <laughs> so that was pretty much over with. So I went from an owner that was very well financed or very not so well financed to a, a Bassett, who was very, very strong, and then went to the New York Giants, which is probably one of the strongest franchises in the NFL history. So it was just a matter of uh, what could be negotiated, what could be talked out. The part that just stunned me was that the NFL commissioner stopped all the players from coming back from the World Football League when it collapsed and coming into the NFL. I just couldn't believe it because there was still a half a season left or a little better than half a season. And I really would have liked to come back and play the rest of the season, but I did not. Well, um, you were, but, but that doesn't, I guess in retrospect, it doesn't strike me as being. I, actually, I'm surprised it wasn't more uh, uh, harsh. Uh, I, I think it was really only for the rest of that season that that Roselle kind of put the kibosh on on players coming back to the NFL. But it, it was it didn't apply to the next season though, right? When, when you came back, no, right? no, I didn't. Did I say it applied? To, I did not say that. No. I, I meant he he blocked the commissioner blocked players from the World Football League coming back to the NFL because of all the disarray it would throw and all the confusion would cause. Oh, I'm teams. sorry. So you mean all together, not just for the rest of the, the remainder of that one season, the NFL wouldn't take you back. 
No, they wouldn't take us back for the remainder of that season. Right. Because it would cause a problem with their with their front offices. Right, sure. Is what the commissioner said. I didn't yeah. see any problem. I didn't, you know, you either buy a player or you don't. Yeah. It, uh, no, I, got, I, I, I just separate departments in the in each NFL franchise, there are separate departments. One takes care of the contract. One, my gosh, they got 40 assistant coaches now per team. Back then, they had all those front office people that did dealt with all that. It wasn't going to be any of the coaches, very little pressure on the coaches is just who they thought they might want to have back. But instead of welcoming us back, they were very uh, conservative about it and said they wanted to block it all for the remainder of the season because it would cause too much confusion. Yeah. I, I'm just surprised that Roselle wouldn't have been more, um, I don't know, uh, have a longer uh, memory. He didn't have to be. He yeah. didn't have to be because he was the only game in town, particularly after the other league just folded. He He could do pretty much the way he wanted. Um, tell us what you did though. Interestingly, while you sat out that the rest of that season, because, because you couldn't play. Cause, uh, uh, I, I remember, I remember the film. It was one of the only films ever shot in, in sense around. <laughs> do you remember, do you remember your, your acting gig during that time? Oh, uh, yeah, I did some stuff with, uh, different, I knew Burt Reynolds, a bunch of fellas and gals from Hollywood over the years, we had appeared at shows and done things and uh, been at uh, charity events and so on. So I spent a little time on TV and doing some things. And that's when I realized that I, I was never going to be any kind of a quality actor. It just isn't in me. I thought you were great in Midway. I'm sorry. Maybe it was the sense around and all the shaking uh, sp speakers and stuff, but I thought you were pretty darn good. But um, All 35 seconds of me? <laughs> yeah, I thought you were really good. I mean, you were recognizable for sure. Um <laughs> I don't want to dwell too much on uh, on the Giants and stuff, and I do want to get to the USFL stuff and also be respectful of your time. So thank you. Um, the Giants, though, um, wasn't necessarily the the uh, most exciting time of your professional career. Um, tell me though about uh, you're right. It was it's it's one of the legacy franchises. Obviously, I I remember seeing you play games in between going to Cosmos games and stuff. But it was a brand new stadium and a new vibe there. I think it was kind of in the vanguard at that time, the Giants, but building their own stadium, it was kind of unique and sort of unheard of. Um, but that turf was not kind to anybody, regardless of what sport was being played on it. Well, I totally believe that I got a knee injury because of that. And that, uh, because of that turf, I think, uh, traction has a lot to do your foot being planted in a, in a grass, natural grass situation. You, uh, your cleats rip the grass away and your leg gives, but in a full concentrated traction situation where your foot can't move, if it's locked by another player or if it's got tremendous adhesion to the ground, um, the knee is going to give rather than the, than the turf. And uh, so I'm not a big advocate of artificial surfaces, but uh, that's what happened. I ended up injured and out and uh, I don't think, I, you know, the, Time was, uh, I spent three years there and it was a, it was a long, tedious time and it was a tough time. Uh, the team was up and down and sideways and, uh, to put together the kind of offensive line that I had at Miami in those, uh, years with the, with the head coach staff, that we had, or the coaching staff we had was, <laughs> well, that just doesn't happen very often. And you talk about great players getting together and making that's all, but just as important is the coaching staff is put together to coach them. 
and uh, I think we were lacking in both players and lacking in in coaching at uh, at New York at the time, and it went down pretty rough. I was there three years, and then I went back to Miami the last year of my career in '79 and played with Don one more year. Yeah, which is a great way. I mean, and not many players get the ability to to kind of close that circle too, because uh, and obviously a lot of fond memories and stuff. But I think you're right. I mean, you know, I. You probably don't realize, I don't want to say how good one has it, but I mean, you were, you know, those early years in, in Miami and, and the, the, the perfect season and the Super Bowl, all that stuff. Right. I mean, um, I, I think it's, no, it's the simple. early, the early years in Miami were very difficult. Uh, 68 and 69 was uh, very similar to what I had going on in New York. There was a great disorganization and new coaching staff had put together for just a couple of years and we're kind of the persuasion that we're an expansion franchise and not too much is expected. So we're just going to kick back and, uh, and uh, you know, ride it, ride it out. Well, that, that sort of works, but I'll tell you to try to put together any kind of ball control offense or power running game under that scenario is nearly impossible. And uh, when you have a guy named Monty Clark and you have a personnel front office personnel guy like Joe Thomas and uh the wherewithal of those two individuals and you got a guy like Shula that's on top of it and allocating the budget for it. Um, you can start to put together some horses. And <laughs> when you're talking about ball control offense and what we had in Miami, it, it was built. It wasn't built in 68 or 69. The, the, the basics started to be put together. I was there. Uh, Larry Little was there. There were some people that were being added that were starting to take, it was starting to take shape. But when Monty Clark came in, and uh, brought a raft of knowledge from playing with the Cleveland Browns for years and years and being the uh, brains, if you will, of the offensive line of that Brown, great Browns team. Um, he knew a lot of people, knew a lot of ex-players or would-be players that that uh, hadn't made it at Cleveland that still had a lot of talent in his, his mind. And he brought some of those in. Jim Langer, uh, Bob Kuchenberg were guys that he had seen up at the Browns when he was there the year before. So in 70, when he came with us, he brought them down 70 and 71 and suddenly put together an offensive line that, uh, you know, fans, I'm afraid they don't, they can't appreciate because they don't understand all the technology, technology and the, how finite the blocking and the, the reading, the communication, if you will. I think the basic line, I put that in the book, the communication, between myself and my offensive lineman was so good that just a one word, three letter word, red, blue, whatever it was, uh, color called, I would recognize that they were recognizing what I was recognizing about the defense and how they were going to block it. You see, it changes at the snap of the ball every time. And in that microsecond area, that's when if you have total understanding of how the people in front of you are going to collaborate and how they're going to work, you know what's going to happen by what you're seeing out of the corner of your eye. And it all takes place in about a half a second. Now, I'm not going to insult your intelligence, Tim. That's, that's, that's what happens. But to see that from the stands, if you've never been a part of that or understood it at ground level and been involved in it, to recognize it, is, it would be impossible. There's veterans that played for years and years as linebackers in different places. that They don't recognize what they're seeing. But that's how intricate it seems like it's just brutal and it's just head on and you're knocking people back. And that's 
Yes, but there's a technique to it because you got to fit the ball carrier in there somewhere. That's the eight ball. And the eight ball, if I'm running into the back of my offensive tackle because I don't know that he's going to X block instead of straight block, that that just causes congestion and the running game doesn't operate. So when you know those intricacies of it and you see those little millisecond things and you perform proficiently, it becomes a devastating weapon, unrecognizable from the stands. When a guy throws the ball, another man runs down the field and catches it, the fellas and people in the stands recognize that immediately. So the rules have changed over the years to enhance the passing game, and rightfully so. It's benefited the spectator's point of view, and the NFL's become stronger because of it. Yeah, it's it's a language, right? It's literally like a language that one has to continue to to learn, refine, get to more sophistication and stuff. And, and yeah, you're right. It is absolutely lost. And, and I'm sure in the late seventies, when you saw airplanes flying over giant stadium going <laughs> 23 years of lousy football, we've had enough. I don't know if you remember that airplane, but that was a very famous incident back in the day. That's when uh, giants fans, even though with a brand new gleaming stadium, were just so frustrated. Um, but I mean, the fact that you were able to um, put a, put a nice capstone on your career to go back to where, uh, all those glory years and and the beginnings and those titles and stuff is, but let me ask you this: given that sort of knowledge and that sort of understanding of the sophistication of the game, um, why did you consider uh, when you retired from playing, getting into um, into coaching um, or management, which looks like it finally came around for you uh, in with Jacksonville in the USFL in, in the early '80s? But did you ever contemplate? you know, kind of going to another level with, with the sport or were you just kind of done at that time? I never contemplated becoming a coach. I'd had uh, the entire time I played football from when I started playing in high school, I missed out on most of the hunting seasons and fishing seasons, the places I wanted to go, Alaska, Northern Canada, all the places that I wanted to see and dreamed of seeing were being pushed back further and further. And I lived year to year, hoping the next year I would get an opportunity to go up and see those things. Had I not played football, I probably would have seen them much sooner. Uh, I can't belittle the fact that I played football, obviously. It was a great thing that enabled me to go back and see those places that I alluded to on my terms later on. And host a TV show for some 15 or 16 years out of Alaska. So... <laughs> To say anything negative about football would be uh, self-inflicting a, a wound. I mean, that's just crazy. But it 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 pushed Alaska off into the distant future, and I, you know, something that I was uh, wanting wanting to return and get to. Uh, and and finally, after retiring, well, I didn't really retire. I got fired. <laughs> Coach Shula said. You know, I came back to be a supportive running back for a fellow named Delvin Williams, and he had some problems and dropped out in the league. And I was uh, oh, 30 or 31, I don't know, 29, 30 years old, too old to be running the ball 40 times a game. And uh, that's what I returned to. I was just going to be a, a third and short situation guy and uh, signed a contract accordingly. But when I started being the primary ball carrier at that age in the last year I was with Dolphins, I told them, if you want me back, you know, I want double that contract. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. I said, well, I'll see you then. And he said, fine. And that's the way that went down. So how does the USFL hit your radar? Um, obviously, football is still in your blood in some respects, right? Um, 
but it, it, USFL, right? So you're asked you were doing a little. I would have never got involved in the USFL, Tim, had it not been for a teammate of mine at Syracuse named Nick Kish, who had uh, <clears throat> become an assistant coach down at the University of Florida. And uh, he uh, he called me and said, they're putting a franchise into Jacksonville. And would you call on my behalf? He wanted to become a personnel. He wanted to be the personnel director for the new team that was taking shape there, the uh, Jacksonville Bulls. Fred Bullard was the owner. Nick got me his number. I called him up and started a conversation with Fred. Fred's a big football fan, just probably one of the classiest, smartest guys I've ever been around. I, I really have great respect for Fred Bullard. And I put that in the book. He, uh, he brought football to Jacksonville, professional football to Jacksonville. Jacksonville had all those colleges around at Georgia and Florida State and University of Florida, and they all they all are each, each other's throats. And this uh, genius board looked and said, you know, if we can get those three teams, college teams, to to uh, send all their folks that like to go to football games to one common pro team, we will fill this stadium. And he was right. Anyway, I called him on Nick Kish's behalf, and during the course of the conversation, to answer your question, Fred offered me a part-time position of coming in and being a, a pro sports personnel director. In other words, the other fellas that might be able to attract from the NFL that I was going to help a little bit, and I had to show up like two days a month, and I think it was a promotional thing as much as a sincere thing. And it uh, it worked out pretty good. I got to know Fred and then got more and more involved. But I did not want to work in football offices and or in coaching offices. I knew the time even uh, time is, is twice as much as what the average player puts in. So to go back to that after being in it for 13 years or 12 years, whatever I played, and not being able to get into uh, going to Alaska was not of major interest to me. And for the next couple of years, I did that. And then I just, uh, when the league folded, that's when I decided to head to Alaska. Um, you, you describe in great detail uh, sort of the, the 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 waning days and 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 Johnny Bassett again making a return uh, thing, being probably one of the strongest owners of this new league with Tampa Bay. Um, I, I'm not going to get into the, the specifics of, of how it all sort of ended and stuff, because that, that's that's what the book is for. Um, but did, did you think that that spring football could have made it had it not been for all the various machinations to bring it into the fall and the lawsuit and all that kind of stuff? I mean, strip all that stuff away. I mean, competing against the NFL. I mean, please. But but spring football and now with spring football kind of still fledgling. Um do you think it's a? Do you think it could have worked had it not changed at the USFL, and/or do you think spring football still has a place to play, uh, a role to play in the pro game today? I'm pretty divided on that. There's a shot, but it's a lean one. I think the the entire essence and thrust of new leagues is to push it far enough to cause an expansion of the NFL and to buy into those those, those uh, franchise those new expansion franchises. And that's pretty much uh, proving, you know, what Jacksonville did is prove that they could support a pro team. So that's what happened. And that's why there's pro football in Jacksonville, because the USFL was there. That's what I think happened. Uh, but you don't you do or don't think the spring is a place maybe for football to 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 
uh, continue beyond the NFL developmentally, maybe directly competitive, uh, you know, fills, fills a gap, keeps players going, new players, you know, uh, essentially giving them more opportunities. I mean, there seems to be a real big divide as to whether people need or want more pro football in the spring. I don't see it, but just because I don't see it doesn't mean that's a fact. I, you know, I, uh, I, well, it's just hard to, there's so many other things that happen in the spring. There's so much competition. There's so many other things that the spring is the spring. I mean, football's always been something you could do on a Saturday because your Saturdays weren't, uh, weren't hunting, fishing or planting or harvesting, you know, it's all football was at a timely point where it was a good time to have it happen. And, uh, I don't, I don't see it. Uh, I don't see it in the spring, but that's, that's my opinion. That's, you know, that's a flip of a coin. It may or may not, if it's uh, you attract enough quality players, the competition is great enough, you get enough people uh, wild about it. Sure. It'll work, but there's a lot of other competition with a lot of other things happening in the spring. Right. It's also not the NFL, which the NFL is very um, good at reminding people about. Um, all right. A couple of uh, roundup questions, uh, Larry, I appreciate it. This has been uh, terrific, but let, let me on this thread, um, how much do you follow the NFL and football today? Do you do you care as much? Uh, maybe your thoughts about sort of where you see pro football right now, where it is, too much yeah. money, all that stuff. What do you think? You remember what I alluded to earlier was uh, how the guy in the stands that sees the pass that never played, never never had any football experience, and doesn't recognize the intensity of the power running game, but then recognizes what a great thing it is when you have a 40-yard pass. I'm uh, – I'm as enthusiastic as those guys. I still, I'm right now, we're moments away from the kickoff between Buffalo and Miami, and I'm going to see if Miami's for real today. <laughs> you know, I've been pulling for them, and I believe they're doing pretty well, but I know Buffalo's for real. And I, uh, I, I think this is a big test. So I'm as enthusiastic today as I ever was about watching the game, and I still keep up with it. Otherwise, I'd be. I just bought a new place here in North Carolina and was out cutting brush yesterday, and really enjoy that. I'm pretty slow at it, I might add, with a <laughs> with a change hip. You know, I had a replacement hip at Cleveland Clinic about a year ago, so I'm a little slow going up and down. I'm a slow at everything. Anyway, I'm out there clearing brush and stuff, but I I'm taking time off from that because I'm really looking forward to watching the game. So to answer your question, I'm as enthusiastic as ever. I know the game has changed. The rules have changed terrifically. It upsets me when they talk about the greatest of all time without stipulating the greatest of his particular time because it's uh, the rules change so drastically. It's hard to compete uh, pl uh, position players against position players from 40 years ago or 50 years ago or 70 years ago because the rules are so different. But you can say the greatest of their time, but unfortunately that doesn't add up to GOAT. But uh, that's that's my thrust on the thing, but I think there's uh, as many great players as ever out there today. I am I'm enthusiastic. I like to watch. I'm not an avid. I have to see it every weekend, but if it's available, I watch it. If I'm in town, I go and sit in person. I like it. I like the fans. I think our fans, and I I really hammered on this in the book, made a tremendous difference in Miami uh, coming through fruition. Our fans were dedicated fans and were coming down and sitting around the stadium 
when Joe Robbie had it in 68, 66 down to 1970, before we started to win, we were the, the worst team in the league, but we still had a following. Tickets were offered for two bucks a piece on game day. And you could get into the game for two bucks and kids from all over, all divisions back in 68 and 69. Think about that. And the times of the riots and all the racial tension, all the ethnic background problems. And what a mixing pot Miami is. White, Blacks, Hispanic, American. You know, it's all kinds of different things to argue about. And people were doing it and having uh, street riots. And suddenly we have a football team and people, and it's down there right in the middle of the zone. And we start to have people coming in and going to the game and then staying after and sitting around the fire from all different walks, all different races, all different ethnic backgrounds. And they started sitting around the fireplace and hashing over what we did in the game, talking about it. And then we get Shula mixed in and we start to win. And suddenly 30 people turns into 300, then it turns into 3,000. Then we have 15,000 people welcoming us back after a victory in Kansas City at the airport a year later. 15,000 people from all different walks of life in Miami got up out of their chairs after watching the longest game ever played at Kansas City, got in their cars and went down to the airport to applaud us coming back. Think about that. If that isn't, that's, you talk about unifying America. What better thing to do it with than sports? Because it's a great mixer. We all sit together. We all care about one thing. We don't get sidetracked on all the ethnic differences and all the different silly things that we argue about. We concentrate on one thing, and it makes us better people. And I like that. And I saw that, and I talked about that in the book. It was a great time to be in Miami. I'm sorry I didn't make more money coming out of college, but at the same time, I was very blessed to be in a situation. I thought I was going into a real hot pot of controversy into Miami after growing up in, in the suburbs in Ohio. And it turned out to be a great mixing pot that, that demonstrated just how well people can get along. And I think the basis of that wasn't solely the Miami Dolphins, but it had it, the Dolphins had a lot to do with it. And I'm very proud of that. All right. Last question. I promise. Um, do you worry about, do you worry about anything in the, in the NFL uh, uh, CTE, which I know is an issue from your personal experiences with, with various teammates, especially for the dolphins uh, too much money in the game, these colossal stadiums that, you know, uh, threaten and, and hijack cities for, for dollars gambling. I mean, which is, you know, I got to be a completely foreign concept uh, for you as a player from, from, from your era now is, basically okay now um what could go wrong I, I frankly i think a bunch of things could go wrong but i don't want to put words absolutely in that's always always been the case so things can go wrong anytime any way shape or form uh i it's still very competitive and i think the players uh i think my, obviously the big money is going to influence the game the productivity the sincerity it has to affect it when you're making that much money. It's like when we're making too little money, it affected it one way. And when you make too much money, it affects it the other way. And I'm sorry, I apologize to any players. I'm not saying they make too much money. I'm getting sure they're getting paid for what they deserve. But at the same time, there's got to be some kind of balance in there somewhere. And we as Americans tend to go from one extreme to the other pretty rapidly. But we'll see what happens. You know, that's all we can do is see what happens. Right now, I'm just hours away from seeing Buffalo and Miami get after each other and finding out whether Miami is uh, is capable of uh, 
and I'm looking forward to it. So the enthusiasm is there. Whatever they're doing with so much money and all the things that could go wrong, so far, it still seems to sustain itself. So who can argue with that? I'm looking forward to the game, and it's still an hour away. Well, I uh, I am uh, ecstatic that you uh, were able to uh, take time for our humble little uh, uh, podcast here. God forbid we'll help you sell uh, uh, more than a few extra copies of the book. I'm um, uh, wish you nothing but uh, general success in life. Uh, you don't need much more uh, uh, of that, but uh, uh, still, uh, and um, I wish you nothing but success with this book as well. Thank you, thank you, Tim. But I, I'll just correct you in this sense, and I appreciate your your honesty. I. I did not write the book to make money. I, I was promoted and provoked into writing the book because Audrey Bradshaw has been after me for five years. That's to write all the her book. fault. Okay, sure. She, it's all her fault. And she, I keep talking about it. And she finally started making the contacts and got to people and said, Larry, you're no spring chicken. You got to face reality. If you're going to do it, it's going to take a year out of your life. You need to start on it. And she got in touch with the people and we got started on it and talked around it. And I'm glad that that took place because it, uh, if we make money on the book, I could, I, you know, it's not going to change my life one way or the other. I, I'm pretty happy with the way things are, but <laughs> I did like to write it because I wanted particularly to talk about Shula and how the change occurred and all the things that have occurred to me over the years about when you have a coach or a leader, military leader, a uh, political lead that you believe in. And, and then he's put to the test and you see, you know, in my situation in the book, I talk about it. I found a scouting report the day before a game and Shula always talked about integrity and pride and honesty. And I, I handed it to an assistant coach. We lost that game. That was against Oakland. And we had a long winning streak going on and we lost that game. And after the game, I saw Monty Clark, and I said, why in the world? You know, we should have been up by 21 points. He said, Schuler said, throw it away. He wouldn't even look at it. Now, that was an opportunity behind the scenes to tell whether that kind of coach had the integrity that he talked about, that he lived what he preached. In that instance, in that scenario, he had everything to win and nothing to lose except his integrity. And he took the high road. Now, that wasn't set up. That wasn't rehearsed. It's what happened. And I saw it demonstrated. He was what he said he was and lived it and ended up being the top of the mark. There was no pressured footballs or no questions about it. Integrity. He lived it. And because of it was the greatest coach of all time. And we were the only team to, to attain perfection. And I think because of his sacrifice, we got to climb that mountain with him. And I go on about it a little more in depth in the book. I, I hope you buy hope you buy the book and, and read it. Maybe find me somewhere and I'll sign it for you. <laughs> that would be fun. But I, I shared those things. I shared those things about Shula. It's not a book about just football. If you're buying a book about just want to read about the games, there's not that. There's It's a book about the people that put it together. It's about the difference we alluded to earlier in this conversation about the difference we made in Miami. It's going to Alaska and experience a near-death situation on, a boat, on the Bering Sea. It's, it's about the realities of life that are true and, and what really happens. And that's why I'm glad I wrote it, because I got to experience a few of those four or five things in my life, and I shared them in the book. If you want a book about just football, 
Well, I, I, it's my book's good, but it's not the greatest one ever written about no, football. Look, it's a terrific read, and I love the, uh, the not to sort of spoil it, but at the at the end of the book, you you literally call out just about every major person involved in your life story at the end, and and give a little update about what where they are now or when you know when they sadly passed and all that kind of stuff. And it really speaks to the fact that um, I would put words in your mouth. It takes a village, but I mean, you you've lived a life well lived, shall we say. And football is a is a is a thread and a major theme of it all, but it's certainly it's certainly beyond just that, and that's that's why I'm really ecstatic that you made time for us because you know obviously our little hook is like the forgotten stuff, but uh, I it it really is a very uh, excellently written uh, read, and I you know I I agree I think it's going to be much more appealing to just general sports enthusiasts and people who remember Larry Zonka from back in the day, and 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 football certainly just happens to be a nice thread behind it, but I. Uh, kudos. Uh, you did, you did a great job. Well, and we only scratched the surface. I didn't talk about, we didn't get to the sports illustrated covers. We didn't get to, uh, uh, we didn't talk about the fumble, but you call it the, the miracle in the metal. We didn't get any of that stuff, but American gladiators, but this has been fantastic. And friends, this is, you know, there's gonna be so much more in this book that you're going to enjoy. And, uh, I'm, I'm only, I'm ecstatic that we could uh, actually uh, give you an opportunity to kind of, you know, help sell it and get some people interested if they weren't already. Good deal, Tim. Talk to you later. Again, our thanks to Audrey Bradshaw, uh, the entire team at um, Ben Bella Books and Matt Holt Books, uh, and um, uh, and of course Larry himself. We could have gone on forever, uh, but I doubt he would have liked to do that, especially given that we were recording <laughs> on a Sunday morning before uh, an NFL game, and a very memorable one it turned out to be. Uh, the game between the Buffalo Bills and the Miami Dolphins for various reasons, which I'm sure you have seen on your social media feeds uh, during the course of last week as we dropped this uh, episode. The book, uh, I must get a must read. Uh, it's terrifically uh, written uh, and terrific memories, uh, some of which we scratched the surface of, but lots more where that came from. It's called Head On, a memoir by our guest this week, Larry Zonka. It is published by Matt Holt Books. An imprint of Ben Bella Books out of Dallas. Uh, it is available. Uh, let's see. We are dropping this episode uh, on Monday, as we always do on the 3rd, I believe, is officially available come the 4th. So that's, that'd be tomorrow if you're listening to this live as we drop it. Um, but uh, chances are pretty darn good that if it's uh, if you're hearing the, this episode, it's already available. If you haven't heard it uh, uh, by now... Uh, there are numerous numerous ways to get uh, this book, and the, probably the best way to help uh, support this show, we don't charge you for it, you know, uh, is to go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode, number 279, with the one, the only Larry Zonka, and you will see a convenient link, or a couple of links, actually, uh, to this book, and you can get it in all its various forms. You'll be whisked away to Amazon, which... Uh, you know, is going to obviously get it to you as soon as humanly possible, perhaps faster than any other source on the planet. And uh, while you're on the website, uh, tool around and look at all the grays around uh, on the uh, the Ponderosa there with all the other episodes that we've ever done. Uh, if you haven't uh, already uh, sampled those, uh, seen the books or the movies or whatever that we might have featured on uh, from those episodes where they're available, 
uh, that website, goodseatstillavailable.com, is the place to do so. Of course, the best way to keep uh, track of the show is to subscribe or follow uh, on your podcast uh, player of choice or uh, device of choice. Uh, our, our, our show, we're available just about wherever you can find podcasts. So you have no excuse not to add us and, and, and uh, put us uh, high on your list of uh, must-listens to each and every week. Uh, if you'd like to send us some email, you can please, uh, by all means, go ahead and do so. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And on social media, you can follow us on Twitter at Good Seats Still, on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available, and on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, by the way, if you'd like to follow Larry and all his um, efforts, both uh, past histories, his thoughts, uh, what's going on with promotion for the book, a couple of places here. So write these down. His website is LarryZonka.com, all one word. And don't forget that Zonka is spelled C as in Charlie, S as in Sam, O-N-K-A, LarryZonka.com. Uh, you will find Larry on Twitter at Larry underscore Zonka 39 at Larry underscore Zonka 39. Instagram, Larry Zonka 39. All together, all one word there. And on Facebook, you'll find him at Larry Zonk, Z-O-N-K, Zonka. Let's see. Uh, I think that's all we got. I mean, my goodness, ain't that enough for you friends this week. Um, again, our thanks to um, Audrey uh, uh, Bradshaw, uh, the team there at uh, Matt Holt, uh, the great Larry Zonka, and you, the awesome listeners uh, who keep our little uh, show going. We appreciate all your input uh, and we thank you for uh, your support. We uh, cannot thank you enough. Until next week, God willing, we'll see ya. Thank you for listening.